Hi, Adam. I am doing very well. Um, my cats are fighting in the background, <laughs> um, but I'm awake and I'm really happy to be here. Oh, I love it. I have never come across a, well, maybe that's not true. I haven't rarely read a book like yours, How Far the Light Reaches, uh, which is subtitled A Life in 10 Sea Creatures. For people who haven't come across it yet and and haven't heard of you, what's what's the book about? The book is essentially a memoir told through 10 sea creatures, although one of the sea creatures is a goldfish. So that's <laughs> a little uh, a little lie, I guess. Um, but each essay in the collection essentially looks at a different sea creature. And then I sort of weave in stories from my own experience or my own life alongside the sea creature and sort of see what each story illuminates about the other. Before we dive into the reading, I am curious, oh, <laughs> because I, I talk about craft a lot, how mm -hmm. did the structure of this essay collection memoir come to be? So this actually came out of a column that I wrote for Catapult called uh, My Life and Sea Creatures. I should remember that. <laughs> um, and I, I guess I came up with a format when I had this job um, right out of college, writing clickbait for an ocean nonprofit. And I basically would um, just look at Google News and like find news stories about sea creatures. And I remember reading this one about this octopus that brooded her eggs for four and a half years. Um, and which meant, you know, she sat on her eggs for four and a half years without eating. And I was very struck by this story. And I knew that I wanted to write about it. But as a science journalist, I was like, I can't just write the same story that like everyone has already covered. So I kept kind of thinking like, what could be my route in with it? Um, and so then I just thought deeply about why the story stuck with me and sort of what parts of my life it made me think of. And then I just tried out sort of telling the octopus's story alongside mine. And um, I really liked how the format sort of worked. And then I saw, then I thought like how many other, um, yeah, creatures sort of like can illuminate different parts of my experience. Um, so it really started with the octopus. Terrific. Um, and what will you be reading for us? Is it the octopus story or is it something completely different? <laughs> No, um, I'm going to be reading from the final essay in the collection, which is about the immortal jellyfish. Terrific. Well, please, Sabrina, take it away. Okay. The immortal jellyfish starts out life just like any other jellyfish, a fertilized egg morphing into a pellet-shaped larva that settles on the seafloor and unfurls into a branching stalk called a polyp. Like a fruit tree, the polyp's arms efflorescent in buds that shed tiny medusas, the final form of a jellyfish. Within a month, the small medusas balloon into a crowd of adults. From here on out, other jellyfish might mature, lay their eggs or spew their sperm and slowly trickle into death. But when the immortal jellyfish's body begins to fail, it ages backwards. Its ailing body sinks to the seafloor or some hard surface and rearranges itself into a silky lump, looking like an egg or a cell, primordial, all potential. It seals itself in an envelope of chitin and shuffles around the meaning of its cells. And then it sprouts into a polyp and grows into not one individual jellyfish, but many clones. So the single damaged jellyfish becomes a host of younger possible cells, each with the same power to regenerate. As far as we know, the jellyfish can do this over and over and over, as many times as they are damaged, into something like eternity. The scientists who originally described the peculiar regeneration did not choose to call the creature, also known as Turritopsis dorni, immortal. 
One scientist went so far as to write that he would never have used that word. He originally said the jellyfish was capable of ontogeny reversal, meaning reversing the direction of the ordinary life cycle. But ontogeny reversal jellyfish does not make headlines nor earn grant funding, and so the creature became immortal. The jellyfish does not know is does not know it is immortal, nor would it long for such a thing if it were not. Jellyfish do not long for anything. They never feel out of place because they do not feel. Some scientists say this biological simplicity may explain the jellyfish's immortality, a kind of evolutionary trade-off. When I read this, I understand. If something intelligent were ever given a second chance at life, it may never want to grow up. Like millions of other mortal beings, when I learned about the immortal jellyfish, I envied the animal. It wasn't the immortality itself that I coveted, but its mechanism. Our traditional notions of immortality are so languorous and passive. Jesse Tuck, the everlasting teen, sips from a magic spring and stays 17 for eternity, just like Edward Cullen from Twilight. I grew up thinking of immortality as something one with a drink or a bite or a pill, a static and irreversible state of being. But the immortal jellyfish has no notion of these tepid forevers. Its immortality is active. It is constantly aging in both directions, always reinventing itself, bell shrinking and expanding, tentacles retreating into flesh and wriggling out again. It is not living forever, but reliving forever. When the immortal jellyfish ages in reverse, its body is not choosing eternity, but rejecting death, which seem to me entirely different things. And the life it chooses is not young adulthood, forever a gangly 17, but childhood. It grows up again. It's an old trope now that many queer and trans people have a second adolescence. The first happens alongside everyone else's, except you are not yourself. You feel as if you are the only person you can talk to. You live someone else's truth. Or maybe you don't know how to be a queer child, never even considered it for one or every reason, and things don't make sense until one day you turn 20 and have what some call a breakthrough, and the clips from your childhood roll back in a suddenly sense-making montage. Watching Leonardo DiCaprio gradually freeze to death on loop and wondering if he was the only man you would ever want to kiss. Sleeping next to a three-foot-tall poster of Shania Twain on the wall. Dreaming of girls in your class and waking up in a fog of confusion or shame. Now comes your second childhood, second adolescence. Maybe you cut off your hair or maybe you start wearing chokers. Maybe you fall in queer love for the first time, which feels symphonic when it starts, world ending when it's over. This second adolescence is bittersweet, full of highs and also plagued by the nagging reminder that all this could have been yours the first time around. So what if you could do it over and then again? What body would you choose? Who would you be and who would you love? Would you do it over and over and over again? Sabrina, thanks so much for reading from your essay collection, memoir. Um, outside of this book, you have written a chapbook, and then you're also a staff writer for Defector. You've written for the New York Times, for the Atlantic. You've basically done it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> You, you earlier mentioned you wrote clickbait right out of college for a nonprofit. Well, I guess just take take readers through like your your writing career, your history briefly. You don't have to go too crazy, mm. but like I, I think it would be interesting, especially I'm very interested. How did you navigate to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I guess to be to be candid, I think I do too many things and I would like <laughs> to eventually do fewer things. Um but I guess in my parents told me that, you know, if I were to go to college, um, that I should 
find a career and it didn't really seem like I could just be a writer that felt very vague so I was like journalist feels like very practical like that's a career that I could have um and then I tried to I tried to dabble in political cultural journalism and I realized like I don't have uh very many takes (laughs) (laughs) um And then I sort of remembered, well, like the one thing I really loved as a kid is like nature and the ocean and animals. And so what if I tried to write about that? And so after I graduated, I felt like I was just trying to work toward a job where I could write about animals in like any capacity that I could, which looked like a lot of interning for different scientific publications and then eventually getting a staff job, getting laid off from that staff job, which is sort of like a a media milestone (laughs) for anyone (laughs) who works in in media. And then I sort of was lucky enough to eventually carve out a niche, like writing about creatures, uh, which is what I do now. And it is weird to sort of balance like the very objective and like, you know, uh, third person reporting that I do in my in my job where I interview scientists and I write about their discoveries or their research. And then the very personal science writing that I do um, in this book and on my own time. But I I feel very grateful that I'm able to do both and like the things that I learn about in my job, like definitely inform like the things that I think about and like what sticks with me is often sort of what bubbles out into more personal writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I also would love to like sleep more. <laughs> and yeah. Relax. yeah. Uh, may- maybe you don't want to answer this, but like, what do you feel you would, or no, let me, I'll rephrase this. What do you want to focus on in an ideal world? Yeah. I mean, I think I really, I really love science writing and Mm -hmm. I it's such a gift to speak with people who have spent like years on like, you know, Mm -hmm. learning about this one particular worm and then like they come out with the paper and it I feel so like lucky to just get to ask them about like, yeah, this thing that they alone are so excited about. No one else knows about this worm and I get to try to figure out like how to make this worm approachable Mm -hmm. (laughs) to different people. Um, And I mean, I guess I also um I worked a lot of jobs that were bad jobs and like were very hard and really made me feel burned out. But at Defector, I I don't want to say that I've like finally figured it out, but I think I'm at a place now where it's like I have a healthy relationship with my work. Like my job values me and like respects me as a person and lets me really pitch whatever I want. Um, And we're like a worker owned collective. So Mm -hmm. it really feels like everyone is valued and like everyone's opinion is important. And it's a place where you can be your whole self as opposed to like other um, like larger newsrooms. Um, So I don't know. I think that I finally am like on the right path. And so I'm going to stay on this path for a while and like see see how it is. And I'm hoping that maybe, yeah, my like the things that I feel are overworking me right now are related to the book and they'll sort of calm down (laughs) after. Yeah. Thank you so much to Sabrina for joining us on the Day Beautiful podcast. You can find them on their website, uh, sembler.github.io. On Twitter, at Asian Fusion, that's A-Z-N Fusion. And their Instagram, uh, Simbler, S-I-M-B-L-E-R-S, Simbler. As always, you can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful.